Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Susan Sokolblosser. We're at the Nicholson Library. It's June 5th, 2018. And Susan, we'll start you out by asking, why wine? Well, that's a question I've often asked myself because I've wanted to be a lot of things over the course of my life. Um, from ballerina to <laughs> horse jockey to, um, oh, at one point I wanted to be a translator for Japanese and English. Mm -hmm. I never, ever thought about wine. So it is ironic. It's <laughs> how life happens. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, um, I was unwittingly prepared for it because I grew up in the Midwest in Wisconsin where my father had a wonderful wine cellar which was relatively unusual for that time because most of his friends drank uh, scotch and soda mm -hmm. or Manhattans or <laughs> you know liquor sure. um, but he had gone to France every year for business for a special conference and had developed this love of wine. So he found a wine merchant in Milwaukee who sold him some of the best Bordeaux and Burgundy and German wines. And so I grew up, he shared those mm -hmm. with the family, and I grew up drinking those. You know, just tastes at first, but uh, then later, you know, really enjoying it. So that was my taste in wine. Mm -hmm. And particularly Pinot Noir, which I love, and the German wines, the mm -hmm. Moselle. So when you think of Oregon and you think of the wonderful Pinot Noir and the wonderful Rieslings, I was being trained, my palate was being trained for that from the time I was in high school on but I'd never had any agricultural training so, um, or business training. So I went to great college, I went to Stanford. Um, I actually went there because I wanted to study Japanese, but my wise mother, because I had been an American Field Service student to Japan my junior year of high school, mm -hmm. came back just enamored of Japan. Um, my wise mother took me to France the next summer so that by the time I got to college, I was enamored of France <laughs> and spent most of my time with the French international students and actually never took a Japanese class until my senior year. But be that as it may, I was a liberal arts major. I married Bill Blosser right out of college. He was a liberal arts major. Neither of us had any formal agricultural or business training. So the fact that we decided to start an agricultural business is just, well, <laughs> silly, weird, dumb. You know, there are a lot of names for it. And that we wanted to grow Pinot Noir because Bill had spent a year studying in France during college and he had become enamored of wine. Uh, Pinot Noir had never done well in the United States 
well, that didn't stop us. Mm -hmm. Just because it hadn't been done didn't mean it couldn't be done. And we ended up deciding, rather than California, we would locate in Oregon, which had no European wine grape industry at the time. So the fact that we're actually still in business, that Oregon Pinot Noir has become a demand item internationally, that our children, the second generation, are now running the business and grooming the third generation <laughs> is nothing short of a miracle and really should give all budding entrepreneurs hope. Sure. So that's a long answer to <laughs> why wine. The, when I look back on that, you know, that was the first question people always asked. Mm -hmm. How did you get into this business? Because you know, when we bought our first piece of land at the end of 1970, um, there was there was no no European wine grape wines on the market in Oregon. There were a few folks who had just planted vineyards, um, and when we got here and decided on Oregon, we found there were a handful of other young couples just like us young urban professionals mm -hmm. who had decided to go back to the land and grow wine grapes. Um, so we became friends, we supported each other, we shared information and started a ethos of collaboration that has continued until this day. Um, let me see, there was something else I wanted to tell you about that. Mm, you'll have to edit this part out while I think. <laughs> well, let's just go on. Okay. We'll, we'll come back we'll to come that. We'll come to it, okay. When you started, did you have any idea that the industry could actually become something like what it is today? Was there any in inclination in your head that there was this potential? Well, we knew there was potential um, and we, got hold of a um, master's thesis that Charles Curie had done. He was one of the early wine growers that he had done that showed the Burgundy-Oregon connection. And that gave us all hope that if, you know, Pinot, Pinot Noir, Burgundy was a mother load of mm -hmm. Pinot Noir. And so if that worked, it should work in Oregon too. Um, but the reality was we had no proof. We tried everything. Mm -hmm. um, we, you know, conditions were so different in Oregon from either California or Burgundy that we literally had to write the book on how mm -hmm. to grow grapes in Oregon. So what I was trying to think of before is as I look back and think about that question, why did we get into the wine business. Mm -hmm. I am an old history major, so mm -hmm. I look at this with the idea in a, in a broader context. And when I look at the decade between 1965 and 1975, we who lived through it remember assassinations, mm -hmm. political strife, um, Vietnam War protests, race riots, 
bra burning. Mm -hmm. I mean, there were a lot of movements, social movements going on, and that's what stood out. That's what the news was about. Mm -hmm. But behind the scenes, and what we live with today, there was an incredible, innovative, entrepreneurial spirit with out-of-the-box thinking that really changed our lives. This is the decade when Apple started, mm -hmm. when Microsoft started, when Starbucks started. Mm -hmm. This is the decade that Julia Child changed our view of cooking and sure. eating. Um, James Beard was alive. I mean, in almost every field, there was tremendous entrepreneurial innovation um, that has radically determined our lives today. And I look back and I think, we were part of that innovative, out of the box thinking. We were just manifesting it in a different way. Sure, sure. Do you attribute that just to people needing something to, to do, try something at the time to get away from all the things that are going on in the world? Or is there, why do you attribute to this um, sort of innovative rush? Well, that's really a good question and people will answer that differently. Mm -hmm. I think there is such a thing as a spirit of the times. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can ask the question, why did the founding fathers who were in their 20s start a revolution. I mean, it was just, there was something in the air. Mm -hmm. uh, the stars were aligned. I mean, you can look at it any number of ways, but it's always struck me as a history major how interesting it is that at the time that the United States was founded, the generation of well, it was men primarily. The generation of men who were the most intelligent and the most thoughtful went into politics. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's happened since then. <laughs> Probably fair point. So um, you decide, you have this decision, you, you buy land, you have no real, not a lot of sources to fall back on in terms of how to grow fine wine grapes in Oregon. So what are your first steps? What are the challenges that you have to, do you have to pass and how did you go about surrounding them? Well, the idea of starting a vineyard was actually Bill's idea. And in my mind, it came out of the blue. It was not something that we had ever discussed, uh, but I wanted to support him. Mm -hmm. And so I went along. Um, we did a lot of research. That was something we knew how to do. And we talked to the other couples that were up here and um, just started experimenting and found a place to rent that was near the land that we bought. You know, we didn't know, in terms of looking for land, mm -hmm. we didn't know quite what to look for but we knew that grapes um, bloomed in usually June mm -hmm. and that we wanted an area that would be frost free so the grapes wouldn't, uh, the vines wouldn't freeze. And if orchards were successful, then 
that would be g potentially good grape land. Sure. And we found uh, an old, it was actually a dilapidated prune orchard in the Dundee Hills that has turned out, we were so lucky because the Dundee Hills is sort of the coat door of the mm -hmm. wine industry in the Willamette Valley and uh, with its wonderful jory soil. And we, it was just luck for us that we found that and then got to be friends with a local farmer who was about to retire and uh, whose land abutted ours and we bought his land. We sort of bought our way down the hill <laughs> and they were good friends. They helped us learn how to farm as sure. well. What was the reaction of the kind of the local farming community to these young yuppies coming in and growing grapes on the land there? Well, we didn't interface a lot with the farming community. They were not welcoming. Um, there was a lot of skepticism. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of anti-alcohol, mm -hmm. um, religious anti-alcohol. So we chose our friends carefully. <laughs> and the irony, of course, is that all the people who protested are coming there, I mean literally protested, mm -hmm. um, later sold their land for big bucks <laughs> for vin as vineyard land. Sure, sure. So as you're, as you're kind of experimenting and you're kind of learning your, your way, at some point you become much more interested than you originally were in the idea of growing grapes and making wine. Yes. How does that happen? So when we first started, uh, Bill was working in Portland. I had just had a baby. And in the course of the 1970s, I had three children. Mm -hmm. One in 1970, one in 74, and one in the last one in 79. So I worked part-time as a reporter for the News Register. Mm -hmm. I taught several classes um, as an adjunct professor at Linfield. Mm -hmm. And um, finally, and, and worked, when we started the winery, worked in the tasting room on weekends. Mm -hmm. But then in 1980, uh, my family invested in the winery. Mm -hmm. And, well actually it was before that, but in 1980, Bill was able, we were able to pay Bill a salary mm -hmm. as president of the winery, and so he left his job and became full-time uh, at the winery. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to work for him. <laughs> I didn't want him to be my boss. We were equals. And so we looked for an area that I could manage. Mm -hmm. And the one area was the vineyard. I was already writing the checks and keeping the accounts, um, but I was not actually in the vineyard. Um, very much at mm -hmm. any rate. So that's what happened. That's how I became vineyard manager. <laughs> and we had one hired uh, young man who was started with us part-time when he was in high school and then came on full-time after he finished high school. And he essentially taught me how to farm. Um, as did the local farmer mm -hmm. that we bought land from. Mm -hmm. So 
It was once I got, up till that point, the whole vineyard winery thing sort of swirled around me, mm -hmm. and I participated in it, but it didn't, um, I didn't feel it in my gut, mm -hmm. would be the way to put it. Mm -hmm. It was not my passion, it was Bill's passion. Mm -hmm. um, but once I got out in the vineyard and I was among the vines every day and I was responsible for them, uh, things changed mm -hmm. and I really felt a sense of place and tied to the land um, and that changed everything. And I essentially became more passionate about mm -hmm. the business that Bill, <laughs> who was slowly getting burned out because all the projections that he had done um, for my family mm -hmm. weren't turning out. We were entering a recession and I mean there was just so much going on that was beyond our control. Sure. And the bottom line is people, the world was not ready for Oregon Pinot Noir at that time. <laughs> so in 1990 we were really at a low point and um, this was, we, that was part of a recession. We couldn't afford to hire any help for uh, harvest, and so our tasting room staff, the whole staff pitched in. We shortened the harvest, and that Christmas, um, Bill and I sat down and had a long discussion. Actually, we didn't sit down. We were walking on the beach. <laughs> but. One of us had to get a real job. That's the way we phrased it, you know, outside the winery. And um, should it be me, I could go back to teaching. I had a teaching credential. I just have to get it renewed. Mm -hmm. That was a terrible idea to me. I did not want to go back to teaching high school in the public schools where you know hormones are on fast <laughs> forward and brains are on stop, sure. <laughs> pause. Um, and the other reality was that Bill could command much more in the workforce, much higher uh, salary than I could. And it turned out that he wanted to go back and I wanted to get more involved. So the result was that I took over as president of the winery mm -hmm. and the vineyard mm -hmm. and he went back got a real job. Um, <laughs> they welcomed him back at his company and um, he actually rose to run the, be the head of the Portland office. Mm -hmm. So it was a nice, it was good for both of us. Sure. So I took over January 2nd, 1991 and ran the winery and vineyard until January 2nd, 2008, when I turned it over to two of our children. Sure. It's an interesting, it's a very interesting role reversal to start off as, as Bill's passion project and to end with you as the president. Did, was, there, was there something about it, you talked about kind of it clicking when you're working in the vineyard. Was there something at that point that you, that grabbed you and just said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life or the rest of my career? Well. I wanted the challenge. Mm -hmm. I think that um, there were not many women 
in a decision-making role in the wine industry at that time, mm -hmm. and I wanted to prove that I could do it. And I was willing to work for not much money because I just really wanted it, mm -hmm. so we were saving money. We couldn't afford to hire somebody that actually knew what they were doing. And I was an owner. I mean, it was a job I never would have been hired for. Mm -hmm. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but I got it. I wanted it. I was on the job training. Um, and I learned a lot. Sure, sure. Let's talk about some of the challenges um, you personally face. Uh, you, you mentioned being a woman in a position of power in the Oregon wine industry when there weren't very many. Just being a woman in the industry, even from when you started, uh, what, were the, what were the dynamics like? Uh, well, the wine industry in Oregon was started by couples, for the most part. And yet, it was a boys' club. Mm -hmm. It was, the women were, you know, if you think of sports, the men were the starters. Mm -hmm. And in basketball, the women were the bench. Mm -hmm. So they were critical to the operation, but they were, they didn't get the glamour, they didn't get the um, attention, the publicity shots are all of the men. Sure. Um, so that was one thing. The men were the decision makers, they were the stars. Mm -hmm. um, to a great extent, that's still true, and it's just slowly, slowly training, sl slowly changing. So one example, um, was when I was running the vineyard, we did a cover crop experiment, which was um, a collaboration between the Oregon State University, several departments in that at, at the university, and also the Yamhill County Soil and Water Conservation District, and it was led by the head of the Soil and Water Conservation District, who had come to talk to me and said, do you realize how much soil you're, mi you're losing by clean cultivating? Um, it just, you know, when it rains, it flows downhill. Mm -hmm. So we started this cover crop experiment and actually found a really terrific little sheep fescue. And the Soil and Water Conservation Service awarded us conservators of the year. Mm -hmm. So we went to the awards dinner and you know I had managed this whole thing but at the awards dinner everyone came up to Bill and congratulated him. And um, I was just so insulted. Mm -hmm. I took it. I mean I didn't know what to do. I wanted to say hey it was me. <laughs> Um, or to say to Bill, aren't you going to tell him that I'm the one who did this? Um, but he didn't, and I didn't, and so that's why it sticks in my memory. <laughs> sure. And, and is that changing? Has that changed? Oh, I think it has changed. Um, you know, I got used to being the only woman in the room. The phenomenon of coming up with an idea and people passing over it, and then another man in the room comes up with the same idea and everybody says, oh, that's brilliant. Um, women, my generation, are used to that. Mm -hmm. But 
um, it was never, I was never a victim of assault. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. So it was more, more subtle. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things we, we see a lot. We see a lot of young female winemakers in the industry now. We see a lot of young female presidents and things like that. So clearly, you, you, you sort of paid the dues for the future generation. Uh, do you foresee an Oregon wine industry becoming more 50-50 down the road? Oh, definitely, mm -hmm. definitely. Um, my son and daughter are co-presidents, mm -hmm. and my son is co-president winemaker, and my daughter is co-president CEO. Mm -hmm. So um, I like that. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about that, about that transitional period where you are passing down your plan to retire, you're, you have your son and daughter waiting in the wings. What was that like for you personally, and what was that like for just sort of the Sokol Blosser brand, I guess? Well. We never started out to be a family winery. Bill and I were just doing our thing mm -hmm. and never encouraged our children to come into the business. Although they grew up in it, they worked in it, um, it was you know, a big part of their lives. Mm -hmm. Our lives revol revolved around the winery and the vineyard and our idea of a family um, outing would be to go to a wine festival. <laughs> um, and in fact, we did, when the Newport Seafood and Wine Festival started, that would have been, I think, in the 1980s, we would go and Bill's parents would come with us and his father would help Bill and I pour and his mother would take the kids and take them to the beach or take, you know, do sure. things. So it was really a nice family time. Um, but what happened is they each went off to do their thing and you know we thought after seeing their parents work so hard and be so focused they would want to do something else mm -hmm. and indeed they each did go off and they all circled back which was a surprise so the first one really to circle back was Alex who went to Trinity College in San Antonio, Texas, and came back to go to OSU and study horticulture, and ended up actually at PSU and got an MBA, and came, worked for a distributor, and mm -hmm. came on in 1998 to help me with sales. Allison uh, went to France the senior year of her high school and um, then went to PSU, and then went to University of Washington to get her MBA. In the meantime, she worked for me um, as my assistant doing, you know, during summers or in between classes. And one day I came home from a meeting and she was in my office and sitting in my chair <laughs> and I, you know, took a double take and I said, well, what role do you see for yourself at Sokol Blosser? And she said, your position. <laughs> and we both laughed because she was still so young. Um, but after she got her MBA and 
decided she wasn't sure she wanted to come back to the winery. She had taken an internship at Nordstrom, which was really valuable. Mm -hmm. They have such a wonderful customer service ethic. And then she took a job afterwards at Nike. And wasn't that happy because you start at the bottom when you're in a really big corporation like yeah. that. And I needed help. And I said, Allison, why don't you come work for me? And she said, Mom, do you realize that if I come to work for you, I'll be lowering the annual salary of my graduating class <laughs> because I couldn't begin to pay her what her cohorts were making when they went off sure. to get jobs. But I said, Allison, you'll have decision-making responsibility and you'll have a future. And so she came and she and Alex can tell you more about that. Sure. Um, so that was in 2004. And at that point, when I had two, my oldest son, Nick, was, um, had started his own company. So he was not looking for employment. And um, I didn't push that. But I had Allison and Alex working for me in sales and marketing. And they were still young. They were. They had a lot to learn, but I knew at some point um, they would want responsibility. And we called, um, I called a woman named Pat Frischkoff who had started the Austin Family Business Center mm -hmm. at Oregon State. Um, and she came and gave us some lessons, you know, said this is what you have to watch out for. Mm -hmm. She was sort of our consultant for sure. a while. We started a three-year transition. And we started because this was, say, in 2004, the end of 2004. We started because I realized several things. One was that I had achieved what I wanted to achieve in the winery, mm -hmm. and it was time for a new vision. We had to have a vision, <laughs> and maybe it should be the next generation. So that was one thought. Mm -hmm. Another thought was that um, when I was out on the road traveling, doing sales, and working with significantly younger sales reps, that maybe someone closer to their age mm -hmm. would find, make a better relationship with them because the wine business is a person to person, mm -hmm. you know, and the people that I had relationships with were still there, but they had, they were no longer in the street. Most of them had, that I knew as salespeople, had risen to management positions. Sure. So there was that, and I faced the fact that I was tired. Mm -hmm. And then one more thing that just put me over the top, and that was I realized that I wanted Alex and Allison to feel in their gut, at the very innermost level, the responsibility for the business. Mm -hmm. 
And in order for them to feel that, they had to have the responsibility. Mm -hmm. And for them to have it, I had to step back. So we started this transition plan, and one of the big decisions was, okay, who's gonna be president? Mm -hmm. And they both wanted it. Um, and that's actually a big chapter in my book because that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And they will talk about that, make sure that they talk sure. about that. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it's worked out having co-presidents. That's the good news. So that decision, the board made that decision, and it didn't really hit me what I was doing until the final transition year, which was 2007. And up till then, it had been um, an intellectual exercise, <laughs> I guess you could say. Sure. You know, we want to train the kids, this is what we're doing, I'm gonna involve them in everything, blah, blah, blah. And then it hit me that they would be the decision makers, I wouldn't. They conceivably could do something that I didn't agree with, mm -hmm. and that would be their decision. And who was I if I wasn't Susan's CEO? Mm -hmm. So I went to, um, Allison actually suggested that I work with their business coach. And I did, and she helped me understand that I was going through a grieving process, that I was really giving up something that had um, been my life, really all my adult life. And I also realized that family business is a very special niche. Alice and I went to, we were invited to speak at a family business conference mm -hmm. in um, Chicago at Loyola University, which also has a big family business program. And we went, and this was in 2007, and I was in the throes of all this <laughs> angst. And I decided, you know, the only thing I could do was to talk about how difficult it was for me. And I had so many people come up to me afterwards and say, thank you for being so honest. Um, tell me that their parents had not given up control. They wished they would. All they did was take longer and longer <laughs> vacations, but still hold on to the reins. Mm -hmm. I call that the Prince Charles syndrome, <laughs> you know, where you've got your child waiting in the wings, but you're holding all the strings. I did not want that to happen. So I realized that what I was doing was relatively unusual to have a transition plan. And we um, worked on, okay, what would be my relation to the winery after I turned over control? And um, that was also difficult. We ended up um, with something that worked for both of us, that I would do public relations, mm -hmm. Allison and Alex could call on me, um, but they were the day-to-day -day decision makers, and I would stay on the board, which is a family board. Sure. So, you know, it, it all worked out, but it was truly difficult for me. And I kept asking myself, why is this so hard? This was my idea. 
but I kept um, what I guess you could say sabotaging, um, which is what our first consultant, Pat Friskoff, said is the danger. Uh, so for example, we had uh, an executive committee which was um, me and you know Allison and Alex and our uh, controller and the winemaker and we would make the major decisions of the winery. This was the team. And so we'd sit and my, my goal was to let them discuss when an issue came up and I would be Socratic, you know, asking leading questions, but they fumfered around so <laughs> that, you know, I knew what needed to be done and I would, more often than I like to admit, insert myself and say, well, why don't you just do this? And that would stop the discussion because <laughs> they looked to me and the staff looked to me. So what happened, what pushed me to finally let go was I went to, um, I had a trip planned to Atlanta to the High Museum Wine and Art Auction, mm -hmm. which I love to go to, and then to Toronto to our importers gala. So I wanted to take Allison because I wanted her to see the High Museum Auction and uh, hopefully she would go to that in the future and um, you know then she'd have to come to Toronto with me so she said to everybody I'm going as mom's baggage handler <laughs> which you know we all laughed so we went to Atlanta we had a good time we went to Toronto and I broke my ankle mm. so I was going to this is when my first book, At Home in the Vineyard, had just come out, and I was doing a wine, winery dinner and a book reading. Well, the reality was I am a card-carrying member of the Canadian um, health system now, um, <laughs> but my ankle was in a cast, and I couldn't stand. This was, you know, the next day that I had to do this and was actually in a wheelchair. So I asked Allison to stand up and talk about the wines and to go around to the tables and talk to people, which she had never done. So that was a big deal for her. She did it well. That was a growing, a teachable moment. <laughs> um, and we came home and I found out that I just, couldn't make it up the stairs and down the stairs on crutches or even without crutches um, to my office. Mm -hmm. And so we set up a satellite so I could get on the network from home because I live right at the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And for the next month, I worked from home. And I look at that, that gave Allison and Alex the chance to take over. Mm -hmm and the staff looked to them, um, I was out of the way. And I look back and I think the universe stepped in <laughs> and gave me a swift kick <laughs> to get me out of the way. But that's what broke the, the log jam, so to speak. So you mentioned a couple of your books. Um, let's talk a little bit about sort of the process for that, how you 
decided you were going to write books, how you went about writing them, and, and then sort of the reception to that? Okay, well, I had done a lot of writing as, you know, history papers, mm -hmm. and then I worked for a newspaper, mm -hmm. so I did feature writing. And when we started, when I, I mentioned before that we literally wrote the book on how to grow grapes in Oregon, we actually did put out a pamphlet, mm -hmm. and I wrote the introduction to it, which was a history. It was pretty brief at that point, but how the wine industry started. Mm -hmm. And then as that uh, pamphlet became a full-fledged book, et cetera, it, um, I made that chapter longer and longer. And I had a friend who said to me, you know, the industry is changing. This was in the 1990s. Industry is changing. There are not many people who remember what it was like at the start, mm -hmm. and you're one of them. Start writing. <laughs> and so I took that chapter and started turning it into a book. And I had, I had no idea how to do that um, because it was not, I, th I thought at first, oh, I'll write a history of the Oregon wine industry. And then as I got into it, I realized um, I couldn't write a history. I was part of it. I couldn't um, have the distance mm -hmm. that you need to write a history. And besides that, I had biases. so. Saying that I would just tell my story freed me tremendously <laughs> from having to be neutral. Sure. And so I started, and I started by writing all about the animals that we had, the dogs, the cats, the peacocks, you know, the animals in the vineyard, and, and then I'd write all about neighbors, and that just didn't, you know, that just didn't seem right. I didn't know how to organize it. Mm -hmm. um, and Alex said, Mom, why don't you organize it by your hairstyles? <laughs> because when I was working in the vineyard, I had really long hair and braids. My, he said, that was your Mother Earth phase. And then, you know, when you took over the winery, you had it cut. And when it started to go gray, I started frosting it, and I had a blonde phase. I mean, it was pretty funny. Um, I didn't do that. <laughs> but another friend said to me, tell it as it happened. Let it unfold to the reader as it happened to you, and get the feeling of the dirt. And so that's what I did. Mm -hmm. I started with how it all came about, and really didn't do much editorializing until the last chapter, when I talked a little bit about being a woman in the business and you know that kind of thing. And that, um, I had a very hard time finding a publisher. When I first had this idea, um, a friend who had an agent, a New York agent, recommended me and this New York agent took me on and I went to New York and met with her and um, she couldn't find a publisher for me. I mean Oregon was just, wine grapes in Oregon was just not a subject that New York publishers were interested in. <laughs> I finally 
uh, was recommended to me that I contact University of California Press. I also tried Oregon State University Press, which has a nice big press. I tried the Oregon Historical Society Press. I thought, this is history. Mm -hmm. This is Oregon. They didn't want it. But the University of California Press, when I sent it to them, they, t they called me right away. Wow. They had a lot of wine books. They had nothing on Oregon. This really appealed to them, sure. and that's who published it. So that was very exciting to me. Um, so that was published. It went up to 2003, I think, mm -hmm. and it was actually published in 2006. Mm -hmm. So when Allison and Alex took over, um, well, it was about 2013 or 2014, 2014, that they said to me, you know, this book is out of print and we think you should update it. So um, there are not many copies left, just the, the winery has all the extant <laughs> new copies. Um, and that was called At Home in the Vineyard. So I went to Carrie Timchuk, the director of the Oregon Historical Society, and said, Carrie, um, I'm a, I would like to update this. Would you be interested in publishing it now? <laughs> um, he, w he said, well, we no longer have a press, but let me introduce you to someone who might be interested. And he introduced me to um, graphic arts publishing, which had just been bought by Ingram, which is a big distributor, and they had one small division called West Wind Press um, that is the only commercial press within the big Ingram group. Um, and they were very interested. So I worked with them, and the goal was to come up with a book that gave some perspective um, on, you know, with the perspective of age, mm -hmm. uh, reflections, as well as telling the story, and to give it a culinary slant. Mm -hmm. And when the, uh, my editor first said, you know, well, why don't you include recipes? I pushed back and I said, well, I'm not a chef. And she said, yeah, but don't you have food memories? And wow, a light bulb went <laughs> off because, you know, it's wine and food. That's what it's all about. And so I had a really good time deciding what recipes to include. And I included one for each chapter. There's 12 recipes. Um, that were some of mine, some, th some things from my childhood, some things from um, Bill's, things that Bill cooked mm -hmm. or that um, were the kids' favorites, you know, just things that where the recipe is woven into the text. And it's actually at the end of the chapter, but the idea of it is in the text. Um, so no slick pictures, it's not a <laughs> recipe book, but there are food memories within it and also a lot of editorial comment. So that, that is my contribution and it goes up through, covers the um, 
transition and my sort of reinventing myself um, goes up through 2016. And that's called The Vineyard Years, A Memoir with Recipes. But I have two other books. Um, in 2008, I self-published a book called Gracious and Ruthless, <laughs> Surprising Strategies for Business Success. And this is a series of short essays um, with illustrations by the Oregonian, at that time, editorial cartoonist, Jack Oman, pictures of me at work, cartoons of me <laughs> at work, um, to lighten it up a bit. But they were things that I had learned um, that I don't think they really teach you in school, um, but how to run a successful business, mm -hmm. stay true to your values, um, and that's, you know, it all, I love the title. <laughs> People pushed back at that too, and you said, really, ruthless? And I said, yes, because the idea is that the ruthlessness is not evil. It's looking in a, at a dispassionate way. What is it that's best for your business? Sure. And then how you deal with that is the gracious part. So it's, you need both. Mm -hmm. You can't be just one. And then the other last book mm -hmm. um, I wrote after the transition after turning over control because it was so difficult for me I learned so much from it I thought I need to write about this and I realized that everybody talks about letting about accumulation you want to accumulate knowledge and well-being and friends and I mean it's all about that's all you hear as when you're growing up nobody talks about letting go mm -hmm. but it's something that we all do in various ways I could be a mother sending her child off to kindergarten or to college I mean it's um, but for me giving up something that had defined me for so many years was a big letting go. So I wrote about it, and that's the title, Letting Go. <laughs> <laughs> and I self-published that as well. What kind of reception did you find locally, nationally, uh, to, to the idea, especially those last couple books of the kind of um, unknown practices for, for business, and especially with Ruthless in the title, and then the idea of letting go. Did you find there were a, a, was an audience out there that was like, yeah, I need something like that? Well, yes, the audience is out there for both of those, and the people who have actually read them um, have given me really positive feedback. Mm -hmm. I have a few business women friends who say they keep a copy of Gracious and Ruthless at their desk and they read it periodically because <laughs> uh, it inspires them. Sure. Um, and the same thing with letting go. People have, you know, people said I bought this for my husband because <laughs> he needs to understand that there's life after business. Mm -hmm. um, so the difficulty 
has been, I haven't, there's not a wide enough audience mm -hmm. for it. And I haven't put in the marketing work that I really need to. So it's, um, and because they were self-published, they haven't been reviewed, was something I didn't realize before. Mm -hmm. um, so I've gotten really positive feedback on all my books. They just don't have, in my mind, a big enough audience. <laughs> so let's back up just a little bit and talk about um, the Sokolwasser certifications, the you know, or, or certified organic and sustainable. And you were among the early adopters of, of both of those. Um, t tell us why that was important to you and, and, and how you went about sort of becoming organic, becoming sustainable. Well, one of the certifications that was really interesting to me was the uh, Salmon Safe, mm -hmm. which started in 1995 or 96, and they came to me and said, we would like to certify you as salmon safe. And I said, well, why are you coming to me? I'm up in the hills. Why aren't you down talking to the dairies, which are you know, polluting the streams? And the um, fellow from Salmon Safe said, well, we want to get wineries on board. We know you qualify. We want to start with you. Mm -hmm. and, he's, and he said, you know, the pollution flows downhill. So that's why the, what you're doing is important. And we want to celebrate that. So that was, I hadn't thought, you know, yeah, of course it runs downhill and that this is important. Um, so that got me thinking. And, you know, we, when Bill, Blosser and I got married, he was already a lifetime member of the Sierra Club, so we've always thought of ourselves as environmentalists. But at that time, it meant more like you were a tree hugger. You <laughs> wanted to save old growth forests. Mm -hmm. So our understanding of what it means to be sustainable and how everything is tied together has broadened over the years. And we, I became interested in organic once the national organic standards were passed. Mm -hmm. um, the challenge, and I, you know, I went for the live certification. I went for the Food Alliance certification, um, but ended up really just with organic. Um, it took me several years to actually finish filling out the application, which was um, asked for three years of records, of inputs and outputs, and it was, we had all that, it was just such a pain to <laughs> compile it. Sure. So, I, you know, I didn't have any secretarial help or assistance to do that, so I had, I was the one who had the information. I had to do it all, I put it off, I put it off. Finally, I said, I'm gonna do this because it was a point where sustainability was starting to be a buzzword. And I had the feeling that everybody was going to start saying how sustainable they were. And I felt it was important 
if we were going to say it, that we could prove it. Mm -hmm. So I went ahead, we got our organic certification, and um, I also joined a group called Business for Social Responsibility, mm -hmm. which was a real interesting eye-opener to me. It was something I was invited to join by a Portland friend, and it was not, I was the only winery or vineyard in the group. It was all different business, small businesses in Portland. And the idea was um, we operated our business according to the triple bottom line, people, planet, profit, mm -hmm. and that was different than the traditional um, way of operating business, which was only profit. profit. So mm -hmm. this was, it, it was really exciting to find other businesses that mm -hmm. felt the way I did. And they became friends and, you know, we sort of grew together. It disbanded as people went off and did their own things in other ways. But it was a group that was started by national companies, Patagonia, Ben & Jerry's, Levi Strauss, um, that were all, you know, some of them are no longer owned by the owners who started mm -hmm. BSR, Business for Social Responsibility, but it was a beacon to us. Um, so what my kids have done since the organic, because that's just a piece of sustainability. The other, well, and one other thing we did was in our building we went for the lead um, mm -hmm. U.S. Green Building Council lead certification, sure. and we ended up being the first winery building in the world to get lead certification, which was very exciting. So our goal, my goal, was to be sustainable, have sustainable practice, practices in every area mm -hmm. of the operation. The glass that we use, consider the weight of the glass we use, the paper for our labeling, we eliminated the um, metal capsule, we stuck with cork, which is a renewable resource. I mean, just what we sold in the tasting room, being organic in the vineyard. Um, and there was no certification for that. That was just our goal. But now there is a certification for that, and it's called B Corp. Mm -hmm. And that's what Allison, actually Nick, um, who was chairman of the board for a number of years, mm -hmm. since I think 2008, uh, he took over when I left. And um, he said, you've got to go for B Corp. And Allison and Alex made that happen. But that is a triple bottom line certification, mm -hmm. which is pretty exciting. Do you feel like your that you had influence on others in the industry what because you were again ahead of the curve on a lot of this. Do you feel like your accomplishments and your the, the ability to do these things led others in the industry to follow? Well, I'd sure like to think that. <laughs> I know that when we found some things we alerted other people and they were able to follow us. For example, um, there was a time 
when we found a way to recycle all the shrink wrap. Mm. That was huge. And we, because all the pallets come shrink wrapped, you know, and we shrink wrap them after we sure. fill the bottles. And so we passed that along to all the other wineries and they were able to recycle their shrink wrap as well. So that would be one small example. Sure. Now we no longer can do that, but um, for a long time that was, sure. that was pretty neat. Talk a bit about your relationship with Linfield. It's a long relationship with Linfield. Uh, obviously, you taught here. Uh, you had a big hand in starting the archive. Um, so, talk a little bit about sort of watching Linfield grow and change as you were a neighbor, and then your involvement with this over the years. Well, I taught at Linfield um, when I was. Let's see. This would have been in the 19, early 1970s when we moved out to the vineyard. Um, I didn't know any women, and I joined AAUW, American Association of University Women, which was very active at that time and made a lot of friends, um, a number of whom were either wives or professors at Linfield. Mm -hmm. And we started a little women's group where we would get together and talk about issues. I was the only one in the wine business but, and we were all friends, and they suggested that I um, apply to teach when one of the history professors was going on sabbatical. So I did and got the job. I managed to turn teaching one class into a full-time job <laughs> um, because I, I, it was like giving myself a self-tutorial. Mm -hmm. I was just a little bit ahead of the students but I loved it. It was so, um, so exciting for me. So I taught American history with an emphasis on the um, early, early years, you know, with the, especially the American Revolution. Mm -hmm. And then I taught uh, the next year, History of Women in the United States, which, you know, good for Linfield for letting me teach that because it had not been offered before, and I, that was really a self-tutorial because I, I had to find the resources and, you know, that was great fun. Sure. Um, and that was during the, um, I remember teaching here in 1976, you know, mm -hmm. bicentennial. Mm -hmm. After that, um, it became, because I wasn't paid diddly squat to teach, <laughs> it became a luxury I couldn't afford. And I was needed at the winery when we started our tasting room and the wine, so I quit. Um, but I've always had friends at Linfield. Mm -hmm. And then um, when Tom Helly came on um, and Jeff Peterson, you know, was working. I'm not quite sure how this all, how I got involved in this, <laughs> but in 2007, I think it would be at the, or 2008 probably, as my kids needed space, I thought, what's going to happen to all these records that probably aren't being kept 
on paper anymore. This could be the last generation that kept records on paper. Um, and before we had started the vineyard, I had worked in North Carolina and in the basement of the library in their private manuscripts collection, which is world famous, called the Southern Historical Collection. And had, knew how important primary manuscripts are. And I went to Tom Helley and said, I have an idea that um, might interest you. And how Linfield really could be the leader in this. Mm -hmm. And he was excited about that and really made it happen. Mm -hmm. um, I'm so proud of that. And it, it struck me as so interesting. So anyway, the Soko Blosser 28 linear feet of records <laughs> were the first uh, acquisition. Mm -hmm. um, but Tom went out and found a donor for a temperature controlled mm -hmm. facility and hired a um, archivist. I mean, it was just, he did it right. Mm -hmm. So I was so proud of, of how, what he did. And it made me realize that I went from writing history to making it, mm -hmm. which kind of gives me goosebumps. <laughs> Strange to think of yourself as, as a historical figure, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> So what was the, when you were thinking of the, the, the importance of, of collecting these materials, was there a, what was, it, what was important about it to you? Why, why was it suddenly, or why was it such a, an interesting and important topic? Well, here's an industry, the wine industry, which didn't exist a generation ago. In the space of one generation, it grew from zero to 60. <laughs> Um, you know, from nothing to international acclaim. And I would think that at some point historians would be interested or journalists would be interested in the records of what were people thinking? What was it like? What did it cost? Um, what was going on at the time? And the way to get at that is primary documents. Mm -hmm. What, speaking of that, what does it mean to you to be referred to as a, a pioneer of the Oregon wine industry? Well, I've gotten used to that term, but for many years I scoffed at it. Um, but I have to admit, it's true. I'm one of the few people that was here at the beginning, and um, we made it happen. <laughs> Do you, um, do the other pioneers, do you guys get together and talk about being a pioneer? Is there a kind of a shared experience there? Well, there's a shared experience, but we don't get together to talk about <laughs> being a pioneer. Um, every once in a while, we'll, you know, if we happen to meet, we'll say, remember such and such. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But we have shared memories, for sure. What about the, uh, your kind of a role as a mentor in the industry? Who are the, some of the people or some of the organizations you've worked with in the industry that you kind of think fondly back on? Like, look at what that person did after they worked with me. Well, 
Sokol Blosser, as a winery, um, I think mentored a number of folks, people who worked for us as they were getting started. Um, John Paul from Cameron worked for Sokol Blosser. Mm -hmm. uh, Terry Castile mm -hmm. worked for Sokol Blosser. Roland Souls worked for Sokol Blosser. Um, and then there's a number of people who worked that, that was in the winery. Mm -hmm. And then a number of people who have worked, um, Gary Mortensen, who's currently president of Stoller, mm -hmm. was my vice president for a number of years. Um, the head of Visit McMinnville and his marketing <laughs> assistant both worked for Sokol Blosser. Mm -hmm. So I feel like we have um, launched a number of folks who've been very successful, not because they worked for Sokol Blosser, but we gave them an opportunity to launch them off. When you, when you started, first started, and then when you kind of became invested in the vineyard, um, what were the expectations you had for Sokol Blosser for the for your own brand for your own for your own company and and how did you deal with meeting them not meeting them and did you ever expect it to look like it does today that's a lot of questions sorry <laughs> kind of dumped them all together there i'm just sort of thinking about sort of managing expectations along yes. the way going from right. an industry we have no idea if it will have success and then as you become more invested managing your your changing expectations well, the expectation, you know, in, in the vineyard is that the vines are strong enough to be immune to disease and pestilence. Mm -hmm. And that the resulting crop is disease-free and delicious. I mean, that's simple. Mm -hmm. um, how you get there is more complicated, but that's the vision. Um, in the winery, it's been interesting to look at where we want our brand to be because we, wanted, we want each vintage to be in the top tier of whatever that vintage is. Mm -hmm. um, I am not a wine geek, and when wine geeks come and want to talk to me about all the wonderful different wines they've had, my eyes glaze over. Wine to me is part of a healthy, balanced lifestyle. Mm -hmm. It's about quality of life. It's not snobby. It's not, um, it's just there like a wonderful peach, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And it's an accompaniment, a great accompaniment to a meal, and we have different varieties and flavors and tastes to go with all the different things that we eat. Mm -hmm. You know, people say, one of the questions I'm asked all the time is, what's your favorite wine? And there's really not one answer to that because it depends on what mood I'm in or what I'm eating or any number of things that are happening. Um, 
so it's it's part of life and I want it to be seen that way and not as we well let's see I'm trying to be diplomatic here <laughs> it's I want people who love wine to want to have our wine in their wine cellar. Mm -hmm. I don't want it to be a status symbol, mm -hmm. collector's item, mm -hmm. but people who collect wine, I would like to like my wine. <laughs> so there's a fine line there. And I want our winery to be um, welcoming mm -hmm. to everyone. So what's your favorite wine? No, I'm just kidding. So you, you, you talked about earlier about kind of having to reinvent yourself um, after, through the transition after your, after your retirement from the winery. So I know you've worked on a lot of other projects since and probably have some more on the docket now. So talk a little bit about your kind of post-wine career. Okay. Well, I was, when I finally let go, it was like the world opened up to me that in the sense that all my intellectual and emotional energy had been focused mm -hmm. on the winery and the vineyard. And when that was taken away, I had all this energy and all this intellectual um, and emotional time mm -hmm. to put towards something. So the immediate thing that happened, you know, it was like, I could do anything. What do I want to do? And before I really had a chance to choose, I was recruited to run for office. And um, this was in, I ran for office in 2010 mm -hmm. for the state legislature. And I thought, um, I, this suited me because I had small business experience, I had agricultural experience, I had educational experience. That really represented the people of Yamhill County. Um, I was running against a man who had been voted the least uh, competent person in the legislature. Uh, by a poll of mm -hmm. somebody, anyway. So it was like, this election is mine to lose. Well, I lost it. <laughs> it was a huge ego blow mm -hmm. to lose to this person who I felt was so incompetent. Um, but on the other side, I had re-engaged with the community during the campaign. Mm -hmm. I raised a lot of money, um, and I had so much momentum from this campaign and the issues. And my first impulse was to, you know, step back and lick my wounds. <laughs> but I realized that I could build on this momentum, and I took the money that I had and I started a nonprofit to work on issues in Yamhill County that interested me. Mm -hmm. And I called this the Yamhill Enrichment Society or YES because mm -hmm. I wanted that acronym. Mm -hmm. And we have since come up with and I had a nice board of energetic 
accomplished people. Mm -hmm. um, and we have morphed over the years. We became a 501c3 and um, now have three programs that are really super. Mm -hmm. One is an early childhood literacy program where we enroll children from birth to five and a program, a national program called Imagination Library mm -hmm. sends to each child to their home every month an age-appropriate book. So it's the only literacy, early literacy program that actually sends books to their home. Mm -hmm. So our goal is to sign up every child that age group and we're over half, mm -hmm. so that's exciting. Um, we have started a early childhood music program cool. that is part of an international program called El Sistema, the system, where kindergartners start to learn the violin. And it's during music class, and they learn the violin in kindergarten and first grade, and then they can go on to other instruments or stay at the violin, it becomes an after-school program. Mm -hmm. So we started with one school in Newburgh, four kindergarten classes. They are adorable. <laughs> um, our vision there is that every elementary school in Yamhill County um, has this program. Sure. The third is both a project of and a fundraiser for Yes, and that is called the Bounty of Yamhill County. And this is a weekend of culinary adventures at the end of August uh, um, with a grand finale called Big Night where we pair 20 chefs, local chefs, with 20 local farms and have sommeliers pouring wine from 20 to 25 local wineries. And the idea is that um, we celebrate the, this incredible coming together that we have in Yamhill County mm -hmm. of talented chefs, small sustainable family farms, and famous wines sure. at a level that no other county in Oregon has. So this is, um, a pretty exciting, and then it's also a fundraiser for our other programs. So you're not bored, you're, not, you're staying plenty busy. Well, <laughs> yes, and then I'm also doing more writing. Mm -hmm. um, I really rail against the idea of retirement. I think of it as redirection, mm -hmm. reinvention, the people that I know who are stepping back from positions are, have so much to give mm -hmm. that, you know, playing golf and bridge just doesn't do it. Sure. So let's talk about Silco Blosser now that you are on, on the board. Uh, what are you, where do you hope it goes in the next 10, 20 years? What, what do you foresee it looking like down the road? Well, I guess if it, if it could be anything, I would love to see the third generation mm -hmm. coming on board and maybe even expanding so that there are other things that the third generation, you know, as we get more family members, 
whether we're producing cheese or bees, you know, honey, mm -hmm. um, sort of auxiliary things that would interest people. Um, I don't know if this is what Allison and Alex have in mind. I just think this that would be really cool. <laughs> I know you've mentioned to me before that you have like a program for the third generation yes. to engage their interests. Talk a little bit about that. Well, Allison is really heading this up, and um, and well, Alex as well. So we have um, the oldest grandchild who just turned 18 yesterday and is going off to college. It has, for the last few years, spent two weeks every summer working in the vineyard. Mm -hmm. And we'll do that this year as well. And his younger brother, who's 15, is starting to do that. The, um, and they also work during you know, Memorial Weekend, Thanksgiving Weekend, mm -hmm. not necessarily in the vineyard, just doing chores. Um, Allison's oldest son, who is just 10, came to Memorial Weekend in his three-piece suit <laughs> to greet people and, you know, he gives water to the dogs mm -hmm. or takes them for a little walk. He's good with animals. Um, he's just a charmer and um, that's pretty cool. Alex's twins, who are almost 16, tend to work more in the winery during harvest um, when they can. So at this point, um, you know, and then the other thing is, see there are two other things. One is that we have a first, second, third generation weekend that we've done twice now. Mm -hmm. We'll do that annually where we have activities. Um, we're a close-knit family, so we tend to spend holidays and things together as well. Um, but the other thing Alex and Allison did was have a video made where Bill and I were interviewed, all the, the three kids were interviewed, mm -hmm. to give a sense of the history. Mm -hmm. And we've showed that to the grandkids as well. You're in a pretty unique position to talk about sort of the history of the Oregon wine industry having been here since almost the beginning of the modern, at least the modern Oregon wine industry. And we always like to ask people what they've seen change, and of course you've seen everything change, but in addition to pure size, what are some of the other changes you've noticed and what are some of the things that have stayed the same or roughly the same since the beginning? For example, you mentioned the collaborative spirit of the mm -hmm. industry. Um, has that remained the same? Is that still the same today? Well, you know, I'm not there on a daily basis, but my sense is that it has. Mm -hmm. And there were always outliers who were not collaborative, who just were there for themselves. Mm -hmm. And there's still that today. Um, but for the most part, the key players are, there's enough collaboration to keep it going. Um, the AVAs were a big deal. Mm -hmm. um, it took a long time to get those going because at first we wanted just to promote Oregon. Mm -hmm. So now that's been a change. 
I think the biggest change that I see and the thing that I see as potentially worrying is that as the founders, the other pioneers, <laughs> um, step back and they have no family to take over, they've chosen to sell. Mm -hmm. And for the most part, they have sold to out-of-state entities. Mm -hmm. What that means is that, you know, they're good companies. That's not the issue. The issue for me is that decision-making is no longer local. Mm -hmm. And I sense that particularly as I look for sponsors for Big Night, mm -hmm. for my nonprofit. The decision which used to be made right here now has to go through all kinds of channels to be okayed at a distant, uh, someone who doesn't really have a stake mm -hmm. in this, not community oriented. So, um, that's a concern. Mm -hmm. That's what's happened. I mean, that's happened to a lot of industries. The banks is a great example mm -hmm. um, that used to be major supporters of a lot of local um, nonprofits now have stepped back. Sure. So the other thing that's happened that is kind of exciting is that McMinnville has become quite a wonderful little town. Mm -hmm. now. It has, there seemed to be a proliferation of wine tasting rooms, which, you know, for locals, that's not a draw. We want more interesting things <laughs> to pull us in. Um, but Third Street is really wonderful, mm -hmm. and uh, it's become quite, quite a wonderful place. Mm -hmm. Where do you? see the Oregon wine industry heading in the next decade or two? Or where, yeah. do, you hope it, or where do you hope it heads? Well, yes. That where I hope it heads is probably easier to answer because I sure don't have a crystal ball. <laughs> but I really hope that the Oregon wine industry keeps its community orientation, the triple bottom line orientation, which so many of the wineries have, mm -hmm. that the B Corp uh, certification becomes more widespread, that the sustainable vineyard practices, you know, that we become, um, continue to become, because I think we're well on our way, a model of how business can be run. Mm -hmm and that this is also reflected in the quality of the wine and the recognition internationally that this is really a wonderful industry. Sure. Do you, do you think the, the growth rate as it stands now is something that will continue for the foreseeable future? Do you see a cap in sight for a number of wineries or a number of vineyards? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> I'm not a good enough economist to answer that. Okay. It sure seems to be mushrooming. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody wants a vineyard. <laughs> well, those are all the questions yeah, that I have for you. I'm finished. <laughs>
<laughs> Do you have anything else I should have asked? Anything else no, you'd like to add? No, I don't think so. It was really quite complete. Good, good. Well, thank you so much. We always appreciate talking so, to you. And wow. Thank you so much for all your answers. And uh, we'll go ahead and stop taping. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.